Auburn, remember all those people that just left, okay? Okay. Thank you. All right, this is my daughter, Auburn. She's helping me this morning. Everybody say, hey, Auburn. All right, you can grab a seat. So if you have your Bibles, flip with me to Luke chapter 21 or 22, whichever one you fancy. Thank you so much. Um, so as we get started, obviously, I am uh, on a cart. This isn't for attention. Uh, I get plenty of that at home. Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to be. Um, a week and a half ago, I had what is called, well, what they now call midfoot reconstruction. Um, so they went in, literally the doctor came in and said, man, we put a bunch of crap in your foot. Um, but he didn't use the word crap, which made me love this doctor even more. Um, so I tore all the ligaments in college, and so they had to finally go in and reconstruct it. So um, it's kind of been a different week and a half. Didn't res- respond well to anesthesia, so I was really foggy-minded for the first uh, really week after uh, my wife thought I was depressed. She just kept asking me the same question in a bunch of different ways. Are you sad? Are you sure you're sad? Are you blue? I'm like, no, I just don't know where I'm at, honey. Um, and so I just want to give a quick shout-out. Where's she at? Where's my wife? She has been fantastic. Uh, she has loved and served well, even sponge bath. I mean, she just does everything. Um, you think I'm lying. I can't get in a shower like this. What's happening? Um, so thank you so much for her. This is the first sermon I've written on painkillers, so we'll see how that goes. Um, it's just going to be a fun morning all the way around. So um, Luke chapter 22, that's why I couldn't remember if it was 21 or 22. Um, 22 is where we're going to camp out, just the first six verses. Um, and so you'll see me, just to finish this up, you'll see me like this the next six weeks, I think. Um, and then I'll be in a boot, and it's going to be hallelujah glorious once that happens. Um, while I've kind of been recovering from surgery and trying to figure out what this life is going to look like, my wife and I watched a bunch of Netflix, um, because that's what you do when you can't do anything else. And we fell in love with the show. And again, maybe some medicine talking. I'm super sensitive today. So if you laugh at this, I have, I have weapons on me. This cast serves a purpose. Has anyone, especially guys, guys help me out. Has anyone watched Anne with an E yet on Netflix? Guys help me out. Any guys? <laughs> any, any men watched Anne of Green Gables on Netflix? No. Your dad loves that show, Kindred Spirit. So have you watched it, Carlton? Or Anne with an E is fantastic. She's the most spunky little redhead girl you've ever, I love that girl. Anyways. Um, one of the reasons I love this show is Netflix has done, and they kind of did it with Stranger Things, right? They've done a magnif- magnificent job of um, making it in the early 1900s. It's set in 1908, making 1908 come alive. <clears throat> so you're watching this, and they spare no detail to show how they shower, how they move back and forth, what downtown looks like. And I love history, but I love the stories of history more than the facts of history. Anyone else? And so to watch what it looks like for these people to live a day-to-day life in 1908 just fascinates me, just blows my mind. All the things they had to deal with, all the things they had to go with. Um, there's one scene where there's a house fire, and so they show that how the whole community rally around this house fire um, and save the day because she's awesome. But all of this to say, as we're going into Luke 22 this morning, um, we are spending a ton of time on the last few days and really now the last few hours of Jesus' life. Um, and so as we understand the setting of Anne with an E, which you should go home and watch, not today because it's sunny, go outside today for the love of all that's holy spent outside today. Uh, but when it rains again, binge watch Anne with an E because it's fantastic. But 
Now, as we understand the 1908s there, we have to understand all that Jesus is going through his last few days. I mean, as believers, especially if you've grown up with the church, right? Like, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Cool, let's move on. We can't move on. That, that is all that we have. That is all the gospel that we believe in. Paul says, I choose to forget all things other than Christ and Christ crucified. So um, Luke spends so much time here. And so we're going to spend so much time here trying to understand and get into the head, get into the emotions, the feelings, the convictions of Jesus in his last few hours. Um, so we're going, it's, it's kind of cool how this all lined up. Uh, we're having our first ever Good Friday service on the 19th of April right here. And so as we're preaching through Luke, we will preach Jesus' death on Good Friday at Good Friday service. Uh, and then we will preach the Easter, the resurrection of Christ on Easter morning. So, I mean, if you're looking, we're in chapter 22. If you just want to flip over chapter 23, Jesus before Pilate, chapter 24, the resurrection. The resurrection is where we'll be on April 21st. Uh, so we're spending the remainder of this spring semester looking at the last few hours, the last few moments of Jesus's life. And so Dylan last week, was anyone here for Dylan's sermon? I podcasted it. It was fantastic. Um, Dylan did almost the entirety of the Olivet Discourse within 50 minutes. Now, that means nothing unless you're a preaching nerd. That is fantastic. You should tip Dylan on the way out. Because um, how he did that, I still have no idea. Uh, because R.C. Sproul says about the Olivet Discourse that no teaching of Christ has generated as much controversy as the portion of the Olivet Discourse. So last week we saw Jesus spend tons of times with his disciples um, teaching what the end time is going to look like. This, this idea called eschatology, the end things, the study of in things. And, and Dylan mentioned, and I've mentioned that at some point we would love to, maybe not in a big setting like this, circle back and kind of teach through what Jesus was teaching and line it up with Revelation and line up some of these in things. But um, Dylan did a great job of bringing out what really mattered to those disciples in that moment, which really matters to us in this moment. But as we're going to see this morning in chapter 22, everything starts to shift. There's a big transition happening this morning and uh, it's it's uh, a tragic one, but it's a merciful one at the same time. So Luke chapter 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread draw near, drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers at how they might betray him. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him, Jesus, to them in the absence of a crowd. So let's pray. And Father, this morning, would you speak to us through your word? God, would you give us an opportunity to hear what you have for us? And Father, as we study Judas and and all that he was going through and the emotions and what that meant for you, Jesus. Would you speak life into us? And Father, would we learn the mistakes of Judas? Would we learn to walk in obedience, to pursue holiness with everything we have? Because it matters. Jesus, we're grateful for every soul in this room. It's in your name we pray. Amen. It feels really weird not being able to move. I'm a walker, so I might start scooting here in a second. 
Um, so let's go back to verse one. We see um, that the Passover is almost here. So this, we're talking Wednesday night, Thursday morning of Jesus' last hours on earth. Thursday night, Jesus gets betrayed. That's when all of it goes down. The court cases go through the night. Friday is death, right? So, I mean, we're there, man. We're right at the end of Jesus' life that the Passover is almost here. And all the Jews have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast with one another, so this is millions of Jews coming in, which makes the Roman Empire a little bit nervous. So all the Roman guards and all the Roman kings have come into Jerusalem to help monitor what's happening. So you've got millions of people that have heard about Jesus that are watching what Jesus has done. Um, so these scribes and Pharisees are really in a pinch because if they do something and, and they create a huge outcry from the Jews, they're done. But they, off, they have to contend with all the, or the Romans too and make sure that they don't create an outcry among them. And so they're trying to figure out still, even though they're done with Jesus, they're trying to figure out how to murder him, but how to do it in silence. They're after the death of Jesus, which just sidebar, just kind of let that sink in. Here are religious leaders that are in Jerusalem leading religious uh, rituals and practices for the Jewish people. And behind closed doors, they're planning murder. I mean, these are the people we're dealing with, right? I mean, these are not good people that in front of everyone, they're great. And look what I'm doing. I'm going to lead you through this. But behind closed doors, there's murder. And there's Judas. Judas gets wrapped into this idea. And it's for 30 pieces of silver, betrays Jesus. It says, hey, this is when we're going to be when there's no crowd. You can come find him here. There's, there's this guy, Judas. So I want to spend a little bit looking at Judas because I think the scary part is that in the question we have to ask ourselves, are we Judas? Do we have Judas-like attributes? Do we have Judas-like tendencies in our souls and in our hearts now? Because there's a big surprise coming for us. And we don't know, we don't know a ton about Judas. He's one of the few disciples that, that don't get a lot of screen time. But, but here's what we know. He was a disciple. He was one of the 12 that Jesus chose. He was a disciple, which creates a really strange and, and sombering conclusion for us. That Judas that could walk and follow Jesus for three years is also able to betray him in the last days. That Judas that saw, I read this quote this week that just kind of wrestled with my mind, in my mind a while. With Judas' own eyes, he saw the clearest evidence. With his own ears, he heard the finest teaching. With his own feet, he followed the greatest example. And yet this man still betrayed Jesus. So if we were to put this into our perspective, you sat 50 years in a church pew. You tithed every single week. You were at every single Bible study, and you served people constantly yet you still betrayed Jesus. I mean, this is a sombering idea that we have to come to grips with. That Judas, who saw everything, still betrayed him. That there's a category for us that we can look religious, we can follow Jesus, we can do all the things that we're supposed to, and even more. This afternoon, go home and study Luke 9, in Luke 10, what we see in these two passages, Luke 9, Jesus sends out the 12. Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72. Both times they come back, and Judas is in both of these groups. 
Both times they come back and they're praising Jesus for all the miracles that they performed, for all the demons that they casted out, for all the healings they performed in Jesus' name. And neither account in Luke does it say, and all of them did this except for Judas. No, he was in. He was performing miracles. He was right with them. And yet he still betrayed him. I think we just have this weird paradigm shift that we have to work through. Because growing up in the South in the Bible about I go to church, I'm good. I'm a moral person. God is pleased with me. We have totally missed out on the Jesus that's standing right in front of us. Flip with me over to Matthew 7 real fast because we have to see this. We have to spend some time dissecting this new category here. And please hear me, this is not fear-mongering. This is Bible preaching. This is realities that we have to face. Matthew 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 21. Matthew 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father is who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do mighty works in your name? Judas did all of that. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So is this a foreshadowing of what Judas is going to do? I mean, is this, is this forecasting what's going to happen in Judas's life and, and what has burdened me this week is could be happening in some of our lives this week? That we've done this, the right thing, we've said the right thing, we've acted in the right way, and we've created this false narrative that I'm, I'm in, I'm good. That just because we look a certain way and we act a certain way and we raise our hands when we're supposed to, so, so then what is it then? What was it for Judas that allowed him in those last moments to betray him? Even though he saw everything, he witnessed everything, he spent almost every single day and night with Jesus. What was it in him that separated him? What is it for us that is going to one day, Lord willing, none of this happens, but has the potential to allow one of us to betray Jesus in those last days? What is it? What is holding Judas back? And it's clear as we start to study the life of Jesus, it, it was his greed. It was his greed. Jesus, or Judas loved Jesus plus money. He loved Jesus plus money. And as we start to see what a true disciple is, it's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus. Everything else is going to burn. It's just Jesus. But if we spend our entire lives holding on to this one thing that's when betrayal happens. And it's strange because we see in verse 3, go back to Luke 22. Sorry, we're going to be flipping a little bit. As you flip back to Luke 22, verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot. He entered into. So does this mean that, that Satan possessed Judas in this last moment? 
No, we see the same illustration used in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira when, when they were holding back money from the church. And Acts 5, 3 puts it this way. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of your proceeds of the land? And we see instantly that, boom, death happens to both of them. So this isn't Satan coming in to possess. This is Satan coming into the stronghold that he had on Judas. Because when we start walking this Jesus plus, this whatever this plus is, whether it be greed, lust, power, anything, whatever this plus is, is the stronghold that Satan has and how he enters us. Whatever this plus is, for Judas was greed, that was the stronghold that Satan had on him. That's how he controlled him. Growing up early in our marriage, I had to tell my wife, and I've shared this before, that there's one thing that she cannot say to me, the D word. And it's not divorce. She can say that whenever she wants because she makes no money. She's going nowhere, right? <laughs> I know that. She ain't leaving me. Look at this, right? No, it's disappointment. I said, do not throw out the word you're disappointed in me because you can manipulate me over and over and over again with that. That is the stronghold that if she wanted to, she's not, she's the most incredible woman I've ever met, but if she wanted to, she could control my entire life by just using this word, man, you disappointed me, and I'm going to do whatever I can to fix that. So we see straight Satan has a stronghold on Judas because of greed. John 12 is where we really get a big picture into this. We, we know the story, right, of Mary and Martha and, and Mary getting down and washing Jesus' feet with her perfume and, and with her hair. And here's Judas' response, John 12, verse 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He, Judas, said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put in it. So we see that Judas, in his greed, controlled the money bag, probably manipulated the situation so that he can control the money bag, not because he wanted to serve the kingdom in that way, but because he wanted to steal from it. So he was not upset with Mary because she was serving Jesus. He was upset because that was 300 denarii he didn't have a grip on. That is his greed. So it was Jesus plus greed for the entirety. And when you read the story in John 12, it was six days before Passover. Here we are the night before Passover. So five days ago, he was stealing from Jesus. Jesus plus wealth. And we see clearly Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So his treasure was in money, was not in Jesus. Is our treasure in something else or is it in Jesus? Now I am 31. I'm starting to come to grips with my life and who I am and, and who, not who I wanted to be, but like who I actually am. Um, here's one of the things. I am a lightweight when it comes to surgeries and uh, like just opening up my cast on Tuesday, I almost passed out. They didn't do anything. They didn't touch anything. They, didn't, they just opened up my cast and I was like, uh, give me some apple juice, bro. Um, no, I'm just a lightweight. So like in my earlier days, I was a volunteer firefighter for a year. I would be like that Snickers commercial where I'm running and I see the scene and just pass out. Like I'm, I'm not that guy. Here's what I'm also not. I like to think that I'm a fighter. Bro, I'm a lover. I'm a teddy bear. 
I have this hard shell on me. Bree knows. I, I'm just, I have a hard shell. I'm a big guy, but I just love. I've never actually punched anyone in the face before. Sounds good mainly. I've never done it. Maybe one day. Y'all try me. Maybe, maybe it will happen. But here's what I know. If you try to go after my family, I'm going to turn into a fighter. And in that kind of brawl, there's no limits to what I will do and will not do to protect my family. I'm talking the most vulnerable parts of your body, I'm going after. Because you're trying to harm my family. Y'all watch The Office? I I will have that fixation like Dwight did on your eyes, where I'm just going to stick anything in your eyes that I can. I might even have some shanks down in my cast right now, just ready for those eyeballs. The throat, the juggler, whatever it looks like. But here, here's why I'm telling you this. We cannot think that Satan isn't going to do whatever he can to take us out. And he's going to go for the weakest, most vulnerable spot in our souls. And if Judas had a hard time with greed and money, it makes complete sense that Satan would attack him in that area. So if we have a hard time, if we have a sin that we're struggling with, it makes sense that in a fight, because listen, I, I think as I've been studying over this, I've been convicted of this, we so often just glance over, oh yeah, Satan, cool, whatever. Like it is a life and death battle with Satan every single day. And Satan does not fight clean. His death is on the line, and he's going to do whatever he can and fight as dirty as he can and go to the weakest and most vulnerable spots in your soul to take you out. So maybe it's the eyeballs, maybe it's the juggler, maybe it's greed, maybe it's lust, maybe it's pride, maybe it's power, maybe it's worry, maybe it's fear. But Jesus plus, whatever this plus is, we cannot dance around with and not think that's exactly what Satan is going to attack. And we see the consequences of that. It's betrayal. It's turning our backs on the one that we love. So, so we can't pretend. I think we just have this, this laissez-faire detail idea about Satan and warfare. We can't do that. First Peter 5 puts it this way. First Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful, which reiterates a lot of what Dylan was preaching last week. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's roaring like a lion, seeking to devour And he's going to go after the weak spots first, not the strong. So we have to be first aware of what is our weak spot, what is our blind spot. But once we do it, once we've understood this, once we know where Jesus is going, we we have to really build um, some protection around this. Because I think a lot of us, again, just treat this this battle with Satan as a laissez-faire mentality. We don't understand the consequences. In general, we live in America where we don't have, uh, Tony Hish, who's the the guy that owns Zappos, is my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes, but in this category, it's terrifying. That worst case scenario in America is not that bad. So he's using this to encourage us to be entrepreneurial, to go create, to go try and fail, because worst case in America is not that bad. But what we have to understand is the negative side of that. We don't truly understand consequences. 
Because worst case in America is not that bad. That we don't understand what consequences are. We want a social life and good grades. We want a ton of money without having to work for it. That we want the American dream while we sit there and watch Anne of Green Gables. It's actually Anne with an E, but. We, we don't understand. We don't uh, walk in the idea that we have consequences, that we have someone gunning for us, that our lives are on the line. We don't, we don't walk around with this idea. The best way I've ever heard this explained is from a pastor in Texas called Matt Taylor, named Matt Taylor. And, and he puts it this way in, in the context of sin. I mean, he talks about the show When Animals Attack. Has anyone ever seen that? All right, when animals attack, is basically these people take in tigers and lions and bears and whatever it looks like. If you said, oh my, in your head, get out. Um, they will take all of these animals in as babies and raise them and, and gr- help grow them and feed them from a bottle. And, and then they get four, five, six, seven hundred pounds. And one day, the lion turns on them and eats them. The tiger turns on and attacks these trainers that have had them from birth. And every time in the show, the people respond the same way. I, I never thought this would happen. Like, I, I put my head inside this tiger's mouth before. I, I fed him with a bottle. I never thought this would happen. I never thought the tiger would turn on us. The tiger is an apex predator. It's what he does. There's one thing the tiger knows to do, and it's to kill and eat. But we do this with sin all the time, right? Right? that we coddle sin, that we think we have our sin under control, that we go, no, no, like, I know, but, like, he's cute, and, like, I've, I've had him since he was little. It's okay, like, Jesus plus, but, but this is okay. But when that sin turns and devours us, we're always left shocked. Our sin is an apex predator. It's here to destroy us. So no sin isn't cute. And no, you don't have your sin under control. I mean, we, we should just have this basic assumption that we never have sin under control, ever. Would you ever turn your back to a lion? That's how we should treat sin, and that's what ended Jewish, Judas for him. John Owen famously quotes, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That if we're not actively waging war against our sin, it's fighting us. That there's no like sin is like, oh, I'm tired, I'm taking a break. Let's get bigger the next year and we'll start this over again. No. If we are not killing sin, it is killing us. If we let this harbor within our souls, we cannot be surprised when it devours us like a lion. Because sin and Satan's ultimate goal is to destroy us. And I don't, again, I think we just overplay this or underplay this constantly. John 10.10 puts it this way, that the thief comes, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have came to have life and life to the abundantly. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus has come so that we can have life and life to the full. So, so what does Satan come to do? Still kill, destroy. That's all he does. We can't treat him like a cute little lion cub. He is here to still kill and destroy. Now, if you're a thinker on any level, if, if you've really studied this, if, if you've wrestled with this, here's the question that should come to your mind, right? If Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world, then why did Satan enter Judas 
Because when Jesus died for the sin of the world, he also conquered who? Sin and death, Satan. So why then would Satan enter into Judas and manipulate Judas to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver? When that's ultimately the destruction of Satan himself, right? When you really start to wrestle, that just makes no sense. Satan is putting an end to himself by entering into Judas. Have you guys heard those horrific news stories of where a breakup goes bad, right? And the boyfriend gets so jealous that he, that he goes in and harms and, and potentially kills his ex-girlfriend because he says, if I can't have her, no one can have her. So in this moment, Satan goes, I've lost. From Luke 9.59, Jesus has set his eyes to his death in Jerusalem. I have lost, so I'm going to make Jesus' death the most brutal, excruciating, embarrassing death that I can. This isn't going to be the Pharisee sneaking in and killing him in his bedroom. This is going to be public. This is going to be torture. This is going to be unfathomably the worst death that I can imagine. Because even in Satan's loss, destruction is still his goal. Even though Satan has lost, he's still going to destroy as much as possible. And here, here's how I know. Let's, let's bring it into real world terms. There are sins that you haven't struggled with. I hear this a lot because I do a lot of discipleship with dudes. I haven't struggled with lust or pornography in 10 years and out of nowhere it destroyed me this weekend. Yeah, of course it did. Because even though you're pursuing holiness, destruction is always Satan's game. I've been, had an incredible marriage for the last 15 years, and out of nowhere, this year has been the worst marriage of my life. Yeah, of course it is. Because destruction is his end goal. We have to constantly be fighting, because even though Satan has lost, he's still out to make destruction happen. He's still out to pursue you and destroy you as much as as possible, and we see this flesh itself out with Judas in Matthew 27. Destruction came to Judas, not only through betrayal, but also through hanging himself. Judas committed suicide over what he had done. Sin is not a joke. Satan's not to be played with. That if we have sin, that is, is Jesus plus this sin to bring happiness. That sin is the stronghold that Jesus, Satan now has to rip us away from Jesus Christ. So we can walk our entire lives and still in the end betray Jesus because this sin, this greed for Judas was the driving force, not his love for Jesus. But it's been important for us, and I opened in the beginning, to, to how did Jesus respond? As, as we're putting ourselves in this moment, how did Jesus respond? Flip with me to John 13, because we'll, we'll see two huge truths that I'm not going to spend a ton of time on. I want to focus on our sin and our betrayal. But, but there's two things that we have to see about Judas and, and how Jesus responded to this. John 13 is a parallel version of what's happening. This is, I'll be preaching that next week at the Passover meal with his disciples. In John 13, Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, look, I'm going to have someone that's going to betray me. This is going to happen. And here's how he responds. Verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. 
but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, when I first read that, just to be, I'm really cynical, I'm kind of a smart aleck, uh, very sarcastic, and I went, ooh, he lifted his heel, right? Like, boom, roasted, right? Like, what does lifted his heel even have anything to do with? But there's a cross-reference back to Psalm 41.9 that says, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And this isn't a human heel. This is talking about the kick of a horse that has picked up his heel and kicked So what Jesus is saying is my friend who I've shared this last three years with who has taken this bread from me has kicked me in the stomach like a horse. He has destroyed me. Jesus felt true betrayal that none of us have felt. Now look, I I know, trust me, I know and I've heard the stories of some of you in this room that have experienced true betrayal, but you're still here. You're still alive. That betrayal has not caused your death. So when we're reading this, I, I think we just have, we, we read the Bible, and I'm so grateful for that, but, but these larger-than-life characters, we just have the, the idea that, like, they don't really experience anything, they don't feel anything we do this, we idolize Charles Spurgeon and all that he did and, and don't realize what he actually wrestled with. Uh, one of my favorite songs, and if you don't like this song, again, I'm going to hurt you. Welcome to the branch. Um, Johnny Cash, anyone listen to Johnny Cash? Thank you. Did I just get a yeet yeet? Okay. You listen to Johnny Cash? Huh, interesting. Just kidding, I like it. So Johnny Cash has a song right before his death, and it's called Hurt. And in this song, you get a real taste. Here's a guy, right, that that has all this fame, all this success, all this finances, all this money. And what he's singing about is how many people he's hurt, how many people he's let down, how many people he's disappointed. So here's a larger-than-life character that we would say has everything that would ever bring him happiness. In his manifesto, his, his death letter was, man, I've let so many people down and I've caused so much hurt that it really brought this soft side of Johnny Cash that not many people have seen. And I think we have to understand the soft side of Jesus, that through this betrayal of Jesus, it was, or Judas, it was a kick to his stomach from a horse. I mean, he couldn't catch his breath. He couldn't believe what was happening. And I think this, this matters for a bunch of different reasons, but... As we pray, I mean, the Bible tells us to lay all of our worries, lay all of our fears at the feet of Jesus. As we pray, we we have this tendency to go, but he doesn't know what I'm going through. There's no way Jesus can relate to this. Like, he's God, he's perfect. There's no way until we focus on the fully God, but we forget the fully man. Hebrews 4.15 puts it this way. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He knows. Oh my gosh, how that would change our prayer life. How that would change the way we reach out to him, the way we pray to him, the way we consider him, the way we run to him. If we truly understand that he knows all that we're going through and all that we will go through. And yet he did it masterfully. He did not sin. 
He knows. Situationally, sure, they're going to be different. I can't argue with that. Jesus had no electricity. He didn't have Snapchat, right? Oh, but this girl didn't write me back. Jesus didn't deal with that. But the feeling of rejection that comes with that, you better believe Jesus dealt with that. But he did it without sin. He knows. So let that change our prayer life. And the other observation that that I need us to see, and this is, I'm going to dabble into this. This is going to be a theme that we're going to see all the way through Easter. John 13, which we're in, just flip right down to verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And here's why this matters. What you're going to do, do quickly. Because as we start studying, if we don't have this theme developed in our mind, as we start reading the rest of this narrative, we're going to get this feeling of, oh my gosh, things are out of control. Like, oh my goodness, poor, poor Jesus, things are going so bad. Like, like where, where is God in all this? Where is control in all this? Like, why does it, there just seems to be chaos. Jesus gave Judas permission to go betray him. Whatever you're going to do, do quickly. That we cannot think for a second as we study the rest of this narrative that God was not in control of all of this. Even though this is the most horrific sin we've ever seen, God was still in control. And we can go to Isaiah, which Isaiah 53.10 says this way, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's will. We can flip forward to Acts 4.27-28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever you in your hand had predestined to take place. So we can go Old Testament, we can go past. All of this was still in the will of God, under the control of God. Jesus Christ was not out of control here. That all of this is because we have a good, gracious, merciful God that's not out of control, that's always on his throne. So we have to lay this foundation as we're going, which, which leads me to this as we begin to wrap up. This secret sin, this Jesus plus that we're wrestling with this morning, if Jesus really is always in control, then he knows right now in this moment. You're not fooling him. We are fools to think that we can fool Jesus and say, no, no, I'm not struggling with this. That we can lie to the God of the universe that Jesus is our treasure when he knows and we know that we treasure this more. If God was control when Jesus died, God knows your sin now. And betrayal might be on your lips. It might be coming quickly for us if we do not examine our hearts because we see through the life of Judas that it's possible. It's possible for us to dine with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to experience Jesus, but the whole time treasure our sin over our Savior. We cannot be fools to think he does not know. We can't be naive enough to think that he won't take us back in. But we have to confess it, church. 
We have to be real with him, with the one who already knows. You're not fooling anyone. Great, you fooled the people in your MC. Great, you fooled me. Great, you fooled your DNA. But you're not fooling God of the universe. So what then do we do? In a minute, I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion. As we remember all that Christ died for, all of your sins, including that secret one, that greed, that power, that pride, that lust, that, that you think you can follow Jesus but still have the tiger roaring around in your bedroom that's going to devour you. So as we examine our hearts, this is the perfect time to repent of that, to quit playing games with the God of the universe, to leave our sin at that table as we pick up his the bread which represents his body, as we dip it in the juice that represents his blood, repent of that sin, get the betrayal off your lips because the consequences are dire. So let's pray.